Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 3D, Captured by the Dawn. One day, the gods got bored with heaven. So they asked the king of the gods, Indra, for permission to go down to earth for a night of frolicking fun. And the king of the gods gave in. He said, go, but come back before the cock crows. Otherwise, you'll be shut out of heaven forever. So the gods went down to India. They went down a deep ravine near a village called Ajanta. And there they carved into the sides of the ravine caves, caves for partying in. Once the caves were carved, they started to party, dancing late into the night. And they got all together carried away. And then they heard it. The cock calling out. Dawn had caught them, and they froze. They became statues and paintings and pillars. Along the walls and the edges of the caves, divine beings trapped forever outside heaven. Or so goes a local legend. The caves are there. They certainly exist. They're probably not carved out by divine beings. They were carved out for Buddhist monks. These were caves for Buddhist monks to live and to worship in. So you might think that the story of Ajanta is the story of Buddhist worship. But it's not. In fact, most of the caves were never even inhabited by monks and never used for worship at all. And that's because the story of Ajanta is the story of a Buddhist institution being constructed. The construction, just as it was about to be completed, was suddenly brought to a halt. So what we get in Ajanta is a snapshot of an institution being built up. And because of that, we get the story not of Buddhist monks, but of the men who were building the caves themselves both the craftsmen on the ground and the rich men who paid for the caves. Pious old men in royal courts and brash young upstarts, and between them an emperor trying to keep it all in balance. By the way, the version of the Ajanta cave story we're going to tell is basically the one from Walter Spink. There are two stories, two versions of the story. The normal one says that the caves were carved out over centuries. But Spink has concluded that most of the caves in Arjanta were were carved in a hurry. Most of them were carved in the space of around 15 years. Now, obviously, the long story, centuries, the short story, 15 years, are very different stories, and we can't tell both at once. But Spink is an academic who spent an awful long time working on the ground, underground, I suppose, in the caves, maybe more than anyone else, and I find his arguments convincing. So we're going to use the basic framework of Spink's short story and bring in insights from other historians as we can. And this is going to be the first in a series of three or four episodes on the life of Buddhist monks and Buddhist institutions in Gupta-era India. In this first episode and the next one, we're going to be looking at this institution under construction, Ajanta, In a third special episode, we'll look at the great university of ancient India, the great monastery of Nalanda. And there might be a bonus mini episode on the life of Buddhist monks away from those huge institutions living in a quiet little cave in a corner in Goa. Right, but all of that's for later. Let's get off to Ajanta. (laughs) 
The long tail of Ajanta begins 66 million years ago, deep within the Earth, where a current of hot rock burst upwards towards the centre of the Indian Peninsula. Up and up it rushed towards the surface and then it spilled out onto the surface, laying layer upon layer of lava. The layers cooled, slowed down, and turned into hard, resilient rock, hundreds of metres thick. Zoom forward millions of years, and a river is snaking its way along the top of the surface of the lava. In later years, it will be called the Tiger River, though back then no one was around to call it anything at all. The river found a fault in the surface, and it pushed its way down through the first layer of lava, and it gathered there to make a pool, metres below the surface. But it wasn't done yet. It found another fault in the next layer of lava, and it pushed its way down into that and formed another pool a bit lower. And then it found another fault in the next layer, and another, and another, and another, creating a series of pools, until at last the river hit rock bottom, 200 metres or more below the surface. Then the river continued on, following the fault lines, carving a tight bend, a tight curve, and on either side of the curve, deep and tight walls, a ravine carved into the hard rock. Millions of years after that, sometime around the end of season one or season two of this podcast, the early centuries BC, the first monks arrived. They were Buddhist monks. And when they took that first journey into the ravine, they must have felt like they'd struck gold. Deep crack in the earth, hidden in this tight bend of a river, with almost impassably steep walls stretching up high on either side, and sealed at one end by six beautiful pools. The monks did what monks had been doing all over India. High up in those walls, they started to carve caves prayer halls and simple dormitories, places where the monks could live in. Ajanta had entered human history. Those first Buddhist monks climbed up onto the ravine walls, and there, where the river bent round, right on the outside of the the curve, they started to dig in. They dug dormitories out of that volcanic rock like Cave 12, what it's now called. Cave 12 is a relatively simple thing, just a square cut back into the rock, a courtyard below the earth. And there are 12 cells leading off from it on the three sides, and the world was probably shut out by wooden shutters on the other side, the side facing the river. The whole cave is carved rather well. It's rather restrained, I suppose. This is the work of craftsmen who know what they're doing. They're not trying to do anything too fancy. The walls of the cave are impeccably smooth. Actually, they're not entirely symmetrical, as if it's not quite gone to plan. But nonetheless, they're smooth and they have carved into them architectural features. Lattice works. Lattice works that look as if they're like fences for non-existing tiny balconies above the doors. And there are the arched ends of ancient Indian buildings. Structural features on ancient Indian buildings, but here they emerge out of the rock as if the buildings are embedded in the rock. And they're not doing any structural role at all. The whole thing almost looks as if it's like a someone's seen an ancient Indian relief. 
Someone's seen the carvings at Sanchi or something like that, and they've tried to bring it to life. Those early monks covered the smooth walls of the courtyard with the fine plaster, made of lime rather than the cheap mud plaster they could have used. The ceiling, they didn't smooth that out. In fact, you can still see small marks where it was chipped away. And there are a couple of bad cracks up there in the rock too. I suppose when you start carving into a rock, you never know what cracks you'll find inside. There are 12 tall, thin doors leading off to the 12 cells. And each cell contained two beds. It's pretty standard. Almost every ancient Indian Buddhist cell seems to have contained two beds. The beds here are carved out of rock. In fact, they're just left there and not carved away, if you think about it. And um, they probably had a little niche carved into the bed. So even though the ancient Indian monks slept on stone, they could still tuck a few things under their beds, just like we do. And that's where the monks lived, in Cave 12. But it wasn't where they worked. That was next door, a couple of dozen metres around the bend. Still high up on, on the rock face, there they carved a huge hall with a towering curved ceiling. And they carved pillars on either side as if to hold the mountain up. The end nearest the surface, there's this great big gaping hole, that they walled off with great wooden shutters, a couple of stories high. And then at the end, furthest into the rock, furthest into the mountain, they carved a great stone stupa. It was done so that you could circulate it, you could walk all the way around it. And that was going to be the focus of their worship. Now, stupas of the past had become such a big feature in Buddhism because they had contained relics. First, the relics of the Buddha, and then relics of some other saints. Hidden away, deep inside the stupa when it was constructed. But this stupa, and others like it that were appearing around India, they were made of solid rock. They had no relics inside, they had no space inside at all. But it didn't matter, because nowadays a stupa was a stupa, and that's just how monks lived and worked. These first monks carved six caves around the corner of that bend. Four of them were dormitories, like Cave 12, containing cells for the monks to live in, and two of them were great prayer halls, containing a stupa in each. And all of them had that same rather austere, smooth-walled style. These caves were communal efforts, at least in the funding, because each of the caves was funded by several different people. And you can still see the traces of some of the inscriptions. So one person might donate enough just to carve out a single cell. Another one might pay for a part of the stupa or some pillars. So this wasn't a preserve of the super rich. This was something, if you're only moderately rich, you could get in on, you could contribute to this project. And actually, at this time, Ajanta was not too different from a bunch of other Buddhist caves that were being carved around India. And the community wasn't that different either. The monks lived and worked there over the centuries. The community survived, tucked away in this secret little corner of a ravine. They were there in the early centuries BC, and they were still there when the Guptas took power. They were still there when the Guptas were in the height of their empire, the height of their golden age. 
We know this because a Chinese monk who came to visit the Guptas during the Golden Age left a record. And he said that he'd heard about the monastery. The monk says that the roads to the monastery were too dangerous to travel, too many bandits and that sort of thing. But he'd heard that people were still able to come and go from the monastery, that they simply flew in and flew out. Now, the Chinese monk didn't go to the monastery himself. Perhaps he just didn't like flying. But just as likely, it was because the monks in that monastery, or at least in those monasteries, they were a bit old-fashioned. The Ajanta monks, they hung on to the old Buddhist beliefs, the lesser vehicle sort of Buddhism. They hadn't adopted the newer, greater vehicle sort of Buddhism, the sort that now dominated the Chinese monks' homeland. So they had the wrong belief. And maybe for that reason, maybe for some other, that first long-standing community of monks finally died out. And before the Gupta Empire started its stuttering and spurting down to oblivion, the cells of the caves in Ajanta were empty, and the chanting in the two great prayer halls had fallen silent. As the Gupta Empire was falling, the land of Ajanta was ruled by the Varkatakas, the mountain people. We've talked about them before. They were the people who were once the formidable enemies of the Guptas, allied with the Nagas. But the Guptas pushed them out of North India, up onto the Deccan Plateau, using a combination of military might and marriage. Now, the mountain people, the Varkatakas, they had ruled large tracts of the Deccan Plateau ever since. But they'd never strayed back into the plains of North India. Until now. But now the mountain people had a new king. Well, an emperor, really. His name was Harishena, which means something like yellowish, brownish army, as far as I can make out. Harishena came to power just as the Gupta Empire was crumbling. And he'd inherited lands up on the Deccan Plateau. Quite a lot of lands, actually. Four big kingdoms. Ajanta was near the heart of his empire, in a territory called Rishika. It was ruled by a local king, who was in turn ruled by the emperor, Harusena. But there was another kingdom to the north, and another kingdom to the south, and another kingdom to the west, all of which were under the emperor. But that was not enough to satisfy Harishena. He took advantage of the exhausted Gupta Empire, and he still spilled north into the lands of his ancestors, which had been occupied by the Guptas for so many years. He took key provinces from the Guptas and he closed off large sections, enclosing them and adding them to his territory. We heard about that in the last episode. And this conquest brought glory and money, a new golden age, picking up in many ways where the Guptas had left off, financing Sanskrit plays, poetry and more, because a lot of that gold was headed towards Ajanta and it was going to transform the site entirely. The person directing that money to Ajanta seems to have been the emperor's own prime minister. He himself was a devout Buddhist, and he seems to have been the person pushing for new caves to be built, next to the old caves in Ajanta. 
Unlike the old-style caves, though, these new caves were to be financed each by a single donor. These were not going to be creations of the community. These were going to be the creatures of the super-rich, buying the ancient equivalent of a tower block all for themselves. One of the first new caves was Cave 11, which is called today. Cave 11 sandwiched between those two old caves that we just talked about, the old dormitory with the smooth walls and the old prayer hall with the stupa at the back. And the new cave tries to squeeze in between them, on the route that the old monks once must have walked between their dormitory and their work. But frankly, sandwiched in between these wondrous two old caves, the new cave looks a bit shabby. Its craftsmen obviously didn't know quite what they were doing. Now, don't get me wrong, they probably did much better than I do. And it wasn't their fault, because caves like this hadn't been dug in India for hundreds of years. They had lost that knowledge that ancient Indian architects had once had of how to carve a cave. The old caves, they'd been executed with quiet competence because many such caves had been excavated during that time. But all of that competence had been forgotten. The new workers started digging into the surface, but they did it at entirely the wrong angle. The aim was to dig a courtyard and have cells off on all sides, just like the ancient dormitory. But they dug far too close to that great prayer hall over on the right, and they were in danger of breaking into the prayer hall. So they planned to carve cells on that side, but they couldn't. They just carved a, a bench there instead, just to avoid having a completely useless wall. It all makes the cave look oddly asymmetrical, oddly weighted over to the left. And it got worse. The difficulty of carving into a rock is that, of course, if you make a mistake, there's no fixing it. You're carving into all, let's say, and bam, your chisel slips. You chisel away the wrong bit of rock. It's not like you can stick that bit of rock back on. You have to carry the wall on at the new angle. And the craftsmen made this mistake over and over, their chisels slipping over and over, so that the walls of the cave curved ever more outwards, and the ceiling too. And, and so that the cave, which was meant to copy the neat square courtyard just next door, the cave splays out. It's not square at all. It's like the drawing of a child who hasn't yet mastered how to do a straight line. By the time the carvers reached the end of the courtyard, the ceiling was a whole six feet higher than it should have been. Six feet. That's quite a few slips of the chisel. And there are other irregularities too. A pillar had to be left in the centre of the courtyard. Four pillars, in fact. And you just don't normally need this in a junta. And that's because a junta's rock is so good. It's volcanic rock, it's hard, it can support a great deal of weight. So in all of the other caves, there's no pillar. Actually, there's a, a cave which has two stories, and in that one there's a pillar in the lower story. But you haven't got that here. So what went wrong? Did they miscalculate the engineering? Did they lose confidence in their carving and thought that the, the ceiling need propping up somehow? Well, actually, this is the first sign that the carvers are starting to really get to grips with their job. Because, although you can't see it, there's a flaw in the rock above the ceiling. 
And somehow, the ancient carvers must have worked this out and left space for pillars to support the roof. Good move. So although the cave was rather crudely done compared to the old caves, the craftsmen had been learning as they did it. And the lessons they learned, they carried with them when they started to build other caves. Because there were going to be plenty of other caves. Money was flowing into Arjunta. And the powerful men of the empire were queuing up to give money to build new caves. The caves were cut into the rock all on that same side, on the curved wall of the ravine, all in a row. There were caves carved by the king of that kingdom, of that province, where Ajanta was. One of the king, local king's caves uh, didn't go too well. Work hadn't gone too far into it when the cave collapsed and it was abandoned. But he tried some other caves, the workers learnt their lesson, and the other two caves quickly got well underway. In fact, the local king seems to have spent an awful lot of money at Ajanta. And we know this because in an inscription he left in one of the caves, he tells us that he expounded, expended abundant wealth and that his aim was to heap up merit. And that's really what's driving him. He's a pious man, maybe pious to a fault, as we'll find out next episode. And before those caves had been completed, other caves were started by kings from elsewhere in the empire, including, most notably, caves financed by the king from the kingdom to the north. All these kings, remember, are under the emperors. They're supposed to be getting along, they're supposed to be friends. And the king from the north obviously felt secure enough to send a bunch of money to the southern kingdom to build caves. Or, rather, not him personally, but one of the monks in his court. The monk was a friend of his chief minister, and he commissioned a huge cave. In fact, not really a cave, a complex. It's over towards the end of the ravine, towards the waterfalls, the, the pools, and it really was the most ambitious plan yet. There were two dormitory caves higher up in the rock, and then wedged between them a prayer room. And then down low, next to the entrance of the prayer room, two extra sets of cells to the left and the right of the main entrance. There, were room, there was room for almost 70 monks, and there was a grand staircase leading up to the cave all the way from down at the river. This was a monk a kingdom out to impress people. At the centre of all these new caves was the linchpin, the cave of the prime minister himself, bigger even than the cave of the northern king we just talked about, and planned with a deep understanding of political stagecraft. The Prime Minister's cave occupies pride of place. It's carved into the rock right at the centre of the bend, where the river turns the tightest. Right in the middle of the array of caves. So you can stand at the entrance to the Prime Minister's cave, and look to the left and look to the right, and see all the other caves fanning around, around you. And then, if you turn back to the cave itself, and you walk up the first few steps into it, you find you're flanked on either side by huge elephants carved out of the volcanic rock. And they really are huge, they're almost life-sized, and they're kneeling to you, they're acknowledging your arrival. A later Chinese monk called this the gate to the whole site, and heard that sometimes the stone elephant's roar echoed through the ravine. You carry on between the two elephants, 
onwards, upwards, past a sculpture of a Naga king, and into the hall itself, its cells fanning out on either side. Now all of these caves were being constructed at the same time, and over the next few years, the whole ravine must have echoed to the sound of chisel and hammer from sunup to sundown. Men excavating the cave, starting to carve out the first cells. Have you ever watched one of those TV shows, ones where people are building a house for themselves? The TV show follows them from breaking ground to finishing it, if they ever finish it. I really quite enjoy them, actually. They're, they're on in the middle of the day, usually. They're a little bit trashy, but they're fun. Pretty often, the building doesn't go to plan. And when it doesn't go to plan, that's usually because the owners change their mind about what they want halfway through the build. The builders have kind of built a few rooms, and then suddenly the owner decides, I want a new room here, or I want a staircase there, or I want a window where there wasn't one before. And the whole thing descends into absolute chaos especially if there isn't an architect. Well, imagine you have people building, only they're not building up a house, they're carving into the rock, carving a cave, so that you can't just try something new, add a new room and then take it away again. If you add a new room, it's there forever. And imagine that these aren't just your regular, fairly rich people getting in on daytime TV. But imagine the owners are instead the super rich, the most important people in the land, and people who are at the royal court and caught up in those trends of fashion and new ideas that swing through royal courts usually. The whole thing would be a mess. The building project would be a moving target, and a moving target you're trying to hit by carving into a mountain of lava. Well, that's almost exactly what you get at a junta. There are adjustments continually being made by the builders. Now, some of those adjustments are pretty practical, maybe even unforeseeable. The builders hit a weak spot in the rock, so they dare not carve the cells they plan to beneath it, worried that the whole roof might come crashing down. Sometimes the adjustments the builders make are just the result of a bit of poor planning, lack of foresight. That Prime Minister's cave, for example, the one with the elephants at the door, well, once they'd carved the door, at the top, they realised that the door wasn't tall enough. It didn't let the light into the cave, and so they did the obvious thing. They raised the height of the door. But that caused other problems, because there was supposed to be a nice line of painting across the top of the cave, and the new door now cut into it. Most often, though, the adjustments that the builders made were commands from on high. Some new idea. Some fashion was thought up, and it started to spread throughout the royal courts. And the, 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 the patrons of the caves sent messages to their workers, saying, include this, the latest new thing, it's really important, do it as soon as you possibly can. For example, at first, the caves were almost all dormitories for the monks, monasteries in that sense, places for them to live whilst they worked and worshipped in the few great prayer halls at the site. But then someone hit upon the idea that you might be able to have worship going on in the courtyard of the dormitory, or you could have a, a room at the end of the courtyard and put a great big stupa in that room. And that must have sounded at court like a great idea. 
If you're a rich patron, you hear, oh, well, you could take your little dormitory and you could turn it into a place of worship, a cell. You could add a stupa. You could become like a little Ashoka building your own stupas. That's a great idea. It means that my building project is going to have more holiness about it. It means it's going to give me more merit. Messages were sent down to the craftsmen in the various different caves. Quickly, start carving a shrine. The craftsmen dutifully modified their plans to include an extra room at the end and started carving in great big rooms at the end. And in the centre of rooms, they started to carve out big blocks, ones you could walk all the way around, blocks to be carved into stupas. But then, fashion at court changed again. Someone thought it would be good not just to have a a stupa to worship, but to have an image of the Buddha. Now, back in the early days of Buddhism, no one had carved images of the Buddha at all, or portrayed him in painting. Instead, you had just an image of a stupa, or some other symbol representing the Buddha, like a footprint. Times had changed since then, and it was the new thing to have an image of the Buddha to worship. So word was sent from court to cave, and the craftsmen changed their plans again. Those great blocks in the new rooms that just carved out to be stupas, well now they were carved into images of the Buddha. Only they already kind of carved out the shape of a stupa, or at least in rough, in the middle of the room. And so the new images of the Buddha had to be cut into this square block of stone somehow, surrounded by other figures, like a bunch of figures squashed and squished to fit into the bottom of a stone jar, and this jar jar later removed. In one of the caves, in fact the earliest of the new caves that we went to, the one jammed between the two old caves, well there, the craftsmen had already almost completed carving out the stupa, when news reached them that actually, no, 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 don't have a stupa, have an image of the Buddha. So they stopped carving the stupa and started carving an image of the Buddha right in front. And they gave him a huge halo to hide the unfinished stupa behind. But my favourite adjustment came when someone at court had some ideas about astrology. They decided that two of the caves should be chosen and cut so that they pointed towards where the sun rose at its highest point and at its lowest point, at winter solstice and summer solstice. And that's a sort of magical idea. You can imagine waking up on the important day of summer solstice, the longest day of the year, and seeing the sun reach right down into the depths of the cave. Two caves were chosen, caves that pointed roughly in the right way. The trouble was that those caves were mostly excavated already. The angle had already been chosen, and the angle was wrong. One of the two caves that was chosen was that grand complex funded by the king to the north, the one with the great prayer hall and the four dormitories. The excavators, when they received the news, had already carved most of the cave into the rock. And now they had to try to bend the laws of stone to obey the new order from on high. In the great prayer hall, which went straight into the side of the rock, and had pillars on either side and was to have a stupa at the end, well, they'd already carved the front section of that, and now they're carving the back pillars. And so they adjusted the position of the back pillars to sort of bend round slightly, so the back of the cave 
It's sort of twisted to try and get it into the right direction for where the sun rises. And to give the illusion that it's in the right direction, the stupa itself was carved a bit forwards and to the right of it. Normally stupas are slap bang in the middle of the back, exactly the same distance on every side to the back, to the left and to the right. In fact, this is the only stupa in all of India at this time that's irregular in this way. And what they did is they had to then go thin down the pillars, make some of the pillars thinner than the other pillars to make it all kind of appear slightly regular. The whole thing was a huge fudge made out of stone. Must have been a palaver. You can imagine the workers dreading news from the capital, dreading a messenger coming with the new command. And what would have happened, I wonder, if the patrons themselves, the rich men of empire, came to visit their own caves? Well, let's find out. So these patrons, the men who funded the caves, they were the great figures of empire, occupying the highest offices in the land. Kings, prime ministers, important businessmen, important monks. It's almost inconceivable that they stayed at Ajanta. They had kingdoms to run, politics to politic. In fact, we've got no real evidence that they actually visited their caves, though presumably they did if they managed to finish them. Given the amount of money they were pouring into these caves, and the fact that it was taking years to build, well, you might guess that one or two of the patrons made their way to go and see what was happening. Certainly, there was a brick building, quite a fancy-looking thing, on the side of the river opposite the caves, on the inside of the bend. This might have just been an administrative building, but it might have been a place for powerful visitors to spend the night. Well, imagine one of them came there. What would they have seen if they looked out onto the other side of the river, the other side of the ravine, and seen the caves splayed out before them? Well, they would have seen workers, and lots of them. Craftsmen working to excavate the caves. Probably the very same men painting the caves too. And they would be working there all year round. In the heat of summer, they would work within the caves, the thick layers of lava around them helping keep the temperature cool. And in the wet of the monsoon season, they could hide inside the caves as well, keeping on chiselling away, carving, painting. And as they excavated the caves, they didn't do one job all at one time. They didn't carve out all of the area and then start painting and start carving in the details. Instead, some people would be carving at the back of the cave, while at the front of the cave, people would be carving out cells or starting to paint. And the paintings, of course, are tremendously important. In fact, Ajanta's almost as famous for the paintings as for the caves themselves. And these paintings show styles from all over India. And so that probably means that the workers themselves were from all over India, the best craftsmen the empire could find for the great project. And the paintings depict creatures and scenes from Buddhist tales. We're going to hear a lot more about them in the next episode, the sequel to this one. With all of the caves being excavated simultaneously, there would have been maybe a thousand workers, maybe several times that, dragging the stone out, pouring it down to the river. Now, where did they all live, these thousands of workers? Maybe some of them lived in the caves themselves as they were being built, though it doesn't seem like there would be nearly enough room for all the workers required. 
So presumably, the workers had small temporary shacks down by the river or up on top of the cliff face. So those were the workers, probably living a reasonably good life for a craftsman, lots of money flowing around, maybe some nice places to live. But, I hear you say, this is a Buddhist site, so what about the Buddhist monks? Well, there would have been a few of them around, but really, not many. And that was because there was really not many places to put them, and not all that much for them to do. Of course, there were those six old caves, two of them were prayer halls, four of them were dormitories, they were still there. But they were designed for a different type of Buddhism, and it seems they had fallen pretty much out of use. And the new caves, well, they just hadn't gone far enough on in the building stage to, to really house monks there. There are a few cells cut out and completed, normally towards the entrance, and some of those were fitted with a door. So there are maybe 12 cells completed in the first few years. That's only space enough for 24 monks. There are a few more monks than 24, though, because the old Buddhist caves were pressed back into use. At least the dormitories were, even if not the prayer halls. And the old Buddhist dormitories were given a fresh coat of plaster. The old rooms became occupied again. What was life like as a monk in Ajanta? Well, the hope was that it would be a life of comparative luxury. The pathway along the front of the caves meant that you didn't have to go down to the river and then back up again to get to work or to go and see your friend in the next door cave. You could just take a short, quick path from one cave to the other. In fact, there are some caves which have paths from one cave to another inside of them, so you don't even know, need to go outside. And you don't need to go down to the river to get water either, because there are cisterns in each cave. Sometimes there's a cistern that's shared by several caves, with a flume drawing water from above. And it's said that the water in these cisterns was filled with sweet, light, clear, cold and copious water. And some of these cisterns are huge. Some of them go back like 16 feet or more under the floor of the cave where you can't even see it. That's a pretty extravagant design given that there's a nice flowing river just down the hill. And the cells, the monk cells, well, they would have been reasonably luxurious too. I mean, not like modern life, but in the old caves, monks had slept on stone. Maybe they'd thrown a mat on top. But here, the monks got wooden beds, something comfortable. And when you think about it, having a wooden bed would be a lot more work than having a stone bed. Because to carve a stone bed, well, you don't really carve it. You just stop carving a bit up from the floor. But to carve space for a wooden bed, you need to keep on carving through the stone all the way to the floor. That's a lot of extra work. Inside each of the cells were little niches uh, to, to keep belongings. There were poles to hang clothes on. And if you look carefully, you can still see holes lining up opposite each other uh, where the pole stuck into the wall or where there was a peg where you could hang a string. And these caves, because they were buried into the lava, they would have been cool in the summer heat. As the builders got better and better, they started to leave really thick walls for the cave to make it really lovely in the heat. And each of the cells was even arranged so that they had a decent view. 
The doors were placed so they didn't line up with a pillar so you could look out and see what was going on in the courtyard. If all went to plan, life as a monk here was going to be good. But things were definitely not going to go to plan. Everything seems so exciting at this stage in the history of Ajanta. So much promise, all of these caves being dug, all this flow of activity. And so secluded as well. So cut off from the concerns of empire and kings. They're just pouring money into it. Well, that's going to change. Great troubles afoot in the empire. Personalities are clashing. Soon, there'll be more clashing than just personalities. And all of that trouble is going to make its way into this quiet little ravine. But that's a story for the next episode. Every week we read something from the original sources. And this week we're going to read an inscription in one of the caves. It's an inscription in that great grand cave funded by people from the Northern Kingdom. And that's that cave with the, the dormitories and the prayer hall in the middle. And this Northern Kingdom is going to be the source of an awful lot of strife for the Empire. It's going to play a great role in the downfall of the Empire and in the future of Ajanta. But you can't tell that from the inscription. The inscription is from one of the monks at the court who is a great friend of the minister and the case being carved for the minister. And it goes like this. Obeisance and praise offered to the Buddha will never turn fruitless from him. Instead, they bring abundant and great reward from him. And even a single flower offered to whom yields the fruit known as paradise, and even final emancipation. Therefore, it behoves the wise man treading the noble path in this world to show extreme reverence to the Buddhas who are exalted through their reputed excellences and have kindly feelings for humanity, have their heart melting, as it were, with compassion. Gods, being time and again harassed by travels, can hardly aspire for victory. Even Shiva had to undergo a curse whereby he became a horrid-eyed one. And Krishna too, though free of all bondage, fell a victim to death. Therefore, the Sagatas, who are absolutely free from fear, excel over all. The Venerable says, Achala, even though he had achieved all which he aspired to and had no further desire, out of gratitude, built a cave dwelling for the Master, for Buddha, which is proclaiming, so to say, his teachings. Why should not a monument be raised by those possessing wealth, desirous of mundane happiness and also of liberation? Such a charity should indeed be performed, far rather by bodhisattvas, for the happiness of the world and also for their own final emancipation. A man continues to enjoy himself in paradise as long as his memory is green in the world. One should therefore set up a memorial on the mountains that will endure for as long as the moon and the sun continue. Now he's spent enough time justifying building caves, he turns to the cave in front of him. The monk Buddhabhadra has caused this temple of Sugata to be made in honour of his parents, as well as in honour of Bhaviraja, who served the mighty king of Ashmaka as the latter's minister, 
Ashmaka was the kingdom to the north of Ajanta, still under the Vakartika Empire. The minister was attached to the monk in friendship, through many successive births. He was steadfast, grateful, wise, learned. He was expert in polity. He was proficient in social laws and customs. He worshipped only the Buddha. He supplied the needs of all the needy. He was very eloquent. Exalted through his virtues was all humility. He was renowned the world over his pious character. And he was blessed with a son. An equally foremost personality by the name of Devaraja. His son accomplishes with tact and sweetness only, even such tasks would normally call for rigours and active struggle, and is now the excellent minister of the king of that northern kingdom, and who, on the demise of his father, raised the dignity of his office by his excellence. Thanks to the monk Dharmadatta as well, as to my good pupil Bhadrabandhu, for it is these two who have seen to the excavation and completion of this cave temple on my behalf. Whatever merit is here, May that be for the attainment of fruit in the shape of supreme knowledge, as well as the multitude of all the pure qualities by them and by all the beings in the three worlds. And that's pretty much it for this week. Thanks a lot for listening. The story of Ajanta has really only just begun. There's much more to it. All of the personalities, the clashes and the conflicts, that's just around the corner in the next episode. If you've been enjoying the episodes, if you've been enjoying the podcast generally, please consider donating to my wife's charity. It's the Snail Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. There are details on the website. There's a link to that in the description of this episode. Have a great week. And take care.